Welcome to New Jersey Tech Meetup, the podcast. Each episode, we bring you a huge amount of value from past keynotes at our events, fireside chats, and much, much more. Tune in to hear from entrepreneurs such as Gary Vaynerchuk, James Altucher, and your host, Aaron Price. We hope you enjoyed today's episode, and we can't wait to share more episodes with you in the future. Quickly, Jeff's a pioneer who helped shape the development of the VoIP industry. He founded the Vaughn Coalition in 1996, which helped keep uh, VoIP unregulated in America for nine years. His Vaughn conference ran from 1997 to 2008. He founded MinX in 98, which became Vaughn issued in 2001. In 2004, the FCC issued the Pulver Order, which was the first positive ruling about VoIP in the U.S. and the world. He's been playing with IP internet communication since 1995. He flew the red eye just to be here for us today. And he, he uh, picked one second. He, if you ask him, which I think we'll get to eventually, why they picked Edison, New Jersey for Vonge's headquarters, as we were talking about a few weeks ago, he's like, oh, sounds like a cool place to be. <laughs> Long Island. You'll tell him. So let's welcome up Jeff Palmer. Good evening, and uh, really thank you for uh, coming out tonight. I uh, appreciate uh, being here, and I appreciate the invitation to be here. I, I wanted to talk a little bit about, um, well, me, but share really a story about being Forrest Gump, because the friends that I have, uh, they, they actually know the truth. And, that, and that's, you know, everything is, not that it's made up, but uh, in order to be successful, you can allow yourself not to know what you're doing. And I'm not talking about faking it, I'm talking about just letting yourself, let your cluelessness be your guide. And that if, if you've ever, I mean, you know, how many people here are working in a profession they actually went to school for? Oh, really, so many, wow. And everyone else? Right? So something happens in between the time where you go to school and you get a job. Or you, and how many people here are uh, entrepreneurs? So, so you guys are just not employable, I understand, okay. <laughs> Um, but that's all part of it, right? Because, because at the end of the day, you know, what, what it takes sometimes an entire lifetime to discover is who you are. So tonight I'm going to talk a little bit about me, actually I guess a little about me, but I, I'm going to share some stories which um, kind of explain, I guess, how Vonage happened, but, but really what it really talks about is, is being yourself. Uh, I, I stand here, the, the reason I'm here today is because I believe in serendipity and synchronicity. I don't know if any of you have looked into your life and seen coincidences happen and realized maybe they're not coincidences. That maybe for some reason the odd set of circumstances that made something happen, happen. And if, if you walk outside, you know, do you ever think of yourself that you could go through the door and put yourself in luck's way or harm's way or no way? But I, I, I've discovered that if you put yourself in the flow of your life, magic happens. That if you're holding back for opportunity, opportunity won't happen. But if opportunity knocks, open the fucking door. <laughs> and, and, and it's really about who you are, wherever you are. And nothing in my life that I've ever been successful at that I ever know what I was doing before I did it. Now it's easy for me to say now, but I had not a clue when I was doing it. And as an entrepreneur, it's kind of sometimes if you're pitching people, you don't lie, but you have to have confidence and absolute devotion in what you're doing to be, to be understood. You also, you know, being clueless allows great things to happen, and I, and I believe in that. I believe in the, in the honesty of the self, and uh, I mean, I grew up being very vulnerable and very lonely. I, anyone here have, maybe you guys are old enough, anyone here remember ham radio or ever know anyone that was a ham radio operator? 
wow, that's a friendly audience. This is great. You know, because before the internet, my first social network was amateur radio. And uh, I, I discovered ham radio when I was nine years old. And, uh, you know, the, the, my whole story, in fact, what's really incredible is there's someone here in the audience whose work indirectly saved my life. And another person from my life who knew me before my life was saved. Um, what I mean by that is, uh, in, uh, I don't know, when I was nine years old, which was a long time ago, relatively speaking, I was very lonely. I don't know if any of you ever remember being lonely when you were a kid, what it's like to be on your own, maybe a little different, maybe you're focused and you're just, you know, maybe it's because you see through these people who think they're your friends or whatever it is, but it, you got your own space. But my dad um, was worried about me. My dad saw that I was sort of lonely. So he told me to call my uncle up. My, he, my dad uh, grew up with my two brothers. One of his brothers was a ham operator, and I had not a clue what this meant. And you know, when my dad told me to call my uncle up and uh, to go to his office to see a factory tour, do you think I did call him? But no. But, but magically, I lived on Long Island. I lived in Queens at the time. And magically, my dad's uncle, my uncle shows up, uh, and he takes me out to Farmingdale, Long Island, uh, for a factory tour. My uncle actually had a successful company started in the 1950s, he actually took public. He was one of the first people to create cable TV test equipment. And um, as a very skeptical nine-year-old kid, I still remember to this very day what happened. And he took me to his office, and, and I figured, you know, everyone worked for him, so it had to be nice. So, you know, so I go through the factory, and yeah, yeah, everyone's very, very nice, and I see the whole factory tour. It was out in Farmingdale. But what the amazing part for me was, uh, and by the way, I'm talking about being lonely, so lonely that you actually tried to understand the music of the people that you're trying to be friends with, I made it your music, so you had something in common with people. It wasn't until recently that I figured out what my music was. But I'm talking about trying very deeply, trying to find connections with people so you could actually have something to be in common with. But that's, that's where my head was at. But I go to my uncle's office, he shows me around, whatever. But in his office, the magical thing was, and his office wasn't so big in his office, but he had this box on his desk. And uh, he, he turned this on this box, and it was a radio. And you could hear very squeaky voices. Any of you hands know, it's like on single sideband, what, what squeaky voices sound like. And he tuned to a clear frequency, and he had said something very cryptic. Uh, what he said was, CQ, CQ, this is K2QQ, I'm calling CQ. Then he repeats it for about a minute. Now, by the way, any of you guys remember ICQ? That was made by very lonely ham radio operators. Uh, <laughs> CQ is the actual Morse code abbreviation for seek you. And if any of you, any of you remember uh, the, the 70s and disco, da 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 is the baseline of a lot of disco songs, somehow. Uh, I won't say how that happened, but um, it's true. It actually is the baseline for a lot of disco songs. Uh, and see, that's da 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 is CQ and Morse code. But anyway, um, my uncle says CQ. And, uh, and I still did not know what any of this meant. It took a while to decrypt it. But all I know is he's sitting there, and for the next hour, no matter where in the world the person was, my uncle would say his name is Fred, he's in Farmingdale, New York, and he gave a signal report and uh, how loud the person was. And it didn't matter where they were, they all spoke English pretty well, actually. And I was mesmerized. And after an hour sitting there listening to my uncle use his ham radio, I realized that my uncle had the cure for loneliness. All I had to do was take his radio out of his office, put it in my bedroom, I'm solved. I could have friends, just turn on the radio, I could meet people, it'd be amazing. But the catch is when you're nine years old, you can't just take a radio from your uncle's office and put it in your room, bedroom and, and call it done. Because to be a ham radio operator meant you had to actually be licensed by the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, whatever that was. Oh, and you had to teach yourself, you actually had to take a test. And so I was nine years old, I had to teach myself college level physics, Morse code, 
and the rules and regulations to be ham operator. So it did not actually happen when I was nine. But when I, was turn, when I turned 12 and a half, almost exactly, I got my novice license. And from the time I got my license to communicate, I haven't shut up since. <laughs> but because it gave me a confidence to actually know that there'd be people out there that would talk to me. And the thing is, when you're 12 and a half trying to say CQ on your own for the very first time, and you start connecting with people, it's kind of cool, but then it's like, how do you have a conversation? So four words I learned about, listen, connect, share, and engage. The same four words I would coach anybody who's active in Twitter or social media today to have a meaningful conversation. But in the world that I grew up in, people were just voices. Now on Twitter, you can see icons of people, maybe these are your friends, I don't know. But, but on the radio, these were people, I knew where they lived, I could tune the dial and know their personality. I didn't even sometimes have to say anything, I just listened there for an hour. Then ever, after an hour, I'd jump in and say hello. It's it very cordial. And most of the people I met on amateur radio, I actually never met face to face, because we didn't meet, really. But we spoke, and uh, you learn to connect, and you learn to actually have a very, very meaningful, very uh, truthful way to, to be. And that sort of became my savior, because when I was a teenager, I used to spend 40 to 60 hours on the radio, uh, up and through college. In fact, um, I learned to write, pro I became a programmer uh, as a teenager for a need. I turned out back in the 70s, in, in the U former USSR, in the USSR and in the Eastern Bloc countries, it was actually deemed to be a sport, and I mean a sport, to be able to be on the radio for 48 hours at a time. To do any guys ever do radio contesting? Just curious. Some of you? Yeah, one of you? Well, believe it or not, if you wake up on Friday morning, you go to sleep Sunday night. I did that. And I competed with thousands of other people all over the world. It was the West versus the East. And we would basically, several times a year, we would wake up and we would compete um, on radio. And it was very interesting because. Uh, I hardly ever won anything, but the, the intensity of trying to talk to as many people as possible, as many different countries as possible, I found super exciting. And, uh, but it became very tedious to, um, to keep track of it. So you know, one of the rules of innovation for me is laziness. I, I think that you know, laziness drives innovation. And in my case, it taught me to program. And I learned how to use Data General Business Basic, which was a mini computer at the time. And I taught myself how to program and I created a multi-user logging trading uh, logging system for my ham radio out of bare necessity, and um, it became that's how I ended up a programmer. And you know the the other thing I used to do back then is I used to listen to radio like from nine to twelve and a half. I listened to the radio all the time. Back then we had AM, and I, I used to know, I still pr pretty much know the AM radio dial. I was so fixated listening to, to 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 not really shortwave but AM radio. And I listened to music, because it actually was, it was hard times to call it music, but there was music. And uh, I became fascinated with radio and music and uh, became really, really passionate for all that. And um, for me, what I ended up doing, and I didn't know I couldn't do it, is uh, I started you know, collecting records. Uh, my social life in high school didn't really work out so well, but the one cool thing is when you have a great record collection, the girls who would not invite you to their sweet 16s would pay you money to DJ them. So. <laughs> So I, I got to be a DJ at some really cool parties. And uh, I partnered with a friend of mine, and he, to this very day, runs that company. That's, that's, that's one startup I did that never had an exit because it's still producing revenue, which you have to always be careful about as an investor because sometimes you invest in revenue-producing companies and will never have an exit, just a rule. Um, but I also started, when I was 16, a software, a software publishing company and a consulting company. What was kind of cute is the consulting companies, my mom actually took me to gigs. She had to drive and wait for me while I was doing the consulting, and I was, became an expert. It was just really, really cute because back in the day, 
data, we had the data general computers were these mini computers and every 30 days a, a maintenance guy came to our home to do preventative maintenance on the computers and he used to tell me about companies going out of business, the systems integrators, so I jumped in and I don't know how I was 16 and did this, but I did. And uh, that, so those are a couple of companies I had. And, uh, but you know, no one told me I couldn't start a company, so I did it. And, and that became something which I didn't really appreciate until many years later. But the whole idea of not letting what you don't know stop you from doing something is not a roadblock that's in my life. That I don't actually think exists for anybody. I mean, it's not that I broke the law. Well, I did, but for something else. But I, I, uh, I didn't break the law in starting a company or trying to put myself in business. I just put myself in business. And sort of like the story is put yourself forward in the flow of what you're doing. And if you believe in yourself. I mean, I, 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 I learned a hard lesson, which I want to tell you about. That, that, you know, I know what it's like to be totally on your own where no one believes in you. And, 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 and to, because of that, I, I, I learned that the best gift you can give anyone is to believe in them. And that as an investor, sometimes the best gift you can give, you, give them is to invest in them. Because it shows absolute belief in something. And when you're all alone, and you can feel that loneliness in a crowd in a moment's notice, you know what it's like, to, you just feel it. And so I, uh, it's, that stuff still scares me today. Um, but ham radio was my savior. And I really was into technology. I was actually the kid who, um, the brother that I'll go, we do a family vacation, go down to Barbados with eight days of rain and I'm in heaven. Because I was on the ham radio for eight days. And Barbados is still sort of a rare country. So I set up all these antennas. I slept, made my sisters carry all these bags of wires. And no one got a suntan and I was on the radio for eight days. I had so much fun. And I think to this day my sister holds grudges about that. Um, but I, I just like, that was that brother. I was that guy. I would take all this stuff and just try to have fun in the most unusual ways. And uh, my parents tolerated that, I guess, is the best way to say it. Uh, I have kids, and they never got into radio. I always thought I was a failure as a parent because I could not get my kids to write code. I could not get my kids to use ham radio. All the crutches that saved my life, they found other things, and they're quite okay. They're, they're second-year students at Colgate today, but um, their twins actually go to the same school. But they, my hobbies and their hobbies, they're different. But as, as a teenager, I really got into ham radio, and I thought you know, mobile telephony would be really cool. And one of the th if you ever remember watching MASH and the reruns of MASH on Radio O'Reilly, the guy that basically connected the radio and did phone patches and stuff, that was me. In times of disaster, well, or in times of just happiness, whatever, when people wanted to talk to friends overseas, because there was a time, believe it or not, where it cost dollars per minute to call overseas. So if you had friends from across the country or people from overseas who want to talk to friends in New York City, in fact, my parents didn't really complain so much. Anywhere in America, I did phone patches. And it was my way, another way of having fun. I love relaying messages. When I was, uh, uh, when it came time to go to university, I do not remember going, ever applying to go to Hofstra, but I had a computer consulting company and I didn't want to go to college. My dad passed away, so I can't ask him anymore. But somehow I ended up going to Hofstra. I, don't, I think he applied for me, because I, I don't, don't remember ever applying. But, um, but I do remember the tension of trying to, be a, 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 trying to make a positive impression on women when I was a, uh, a, a freshman. So I, spent, I had a Trans Am. I spent 10 weeks from the time I knew I was going to Hofstra to the time school started. I rigged up my Trans Am. So within a 30-mile radius of my house, I had this 2-meter auto patch set up. So I was actually able to make phone calls out of my car within 30 miles of my home. I lived in Great Neck at that point. I was able to make phone calls, which in 1980 was pretty cool. <laughs> it's pretty cool to do mobile telephony in 1980. If you ever see those big rigs that we used to use, I did it on radio. So I, as a freshman, though, I spent about the entire freshman year, first half of the lower freshman year, 
trying to get girls to check out my car. <laughs> did not work out. It just did not work out. And, but that frustration, uh, and that app, it was truly frustrating. Um, but I, the technology worked out, but nothing else did. Um, <laughs> and I realized maybe, you know, I was, my approach was wrong, but I didn't get that. But uh, that device I had, the phone patch, well, flash forward many years, I ended up uh, uh, going to school. I actually graduated with an, I stand before you as an unemployed, gainfully unemployed accountant. I have a BBA in accounting. Uh, it works wonders. Um, but what I ended up doing with my accounting degree is I ended up working as a consultant for an accounting firm, and um, which just happened. And I ended up a year or so later actually working for the accounting firm, and I respect accounting. And uh, I was born. Any of you accountants out there, you know that you know in America they have they have basically slave labor. It's paid slave labor from April to from from January to April. It's called tax season, and tax season is a time where you just just put in your time. So one, during one tax season in 1987, uh, uh, I uh, came up with an idea to emulate the HP 12C financial calculator inside of Lotus 1-2-3. And I did this while I was working in my day job. And uh, miraculously, in January 88, PC Week, I uh, wrote a story about this. And uh, I was kind of bored. So I had a day job. But my night job was this software publisher, because I did it as a kid. And um, unfortunately for me, uh, the, the, the inbound telemarketing company that I had hired knew my name. And uh, the managing partner of the accounting firm that I worked for read about it in PC Week, thinks that we should ha everyone in the firm should have this product. And when they called up to order it the, for a site license, the, the guy from the inbound marketing company said, you know, uh, I would love to have take your order. We're set up here to take one order at a time. But for a site license, you have to talk to a guy named Jeff Pulver. And uh, <laughs> he's a little tied up during the day. I, I was, in that particular day, I was homesick because I was like working, I don't know, 100 hours a week. So I was doing tax season plus I was doing my own thing. And I got a phone call from the, from, from the managing partner. I was like, oh shit. And uh, I came to work the next day really not feeling so good. And I resigned. Because I basically told the guy that, you know, I believe there was a future in spreadsheets and that this is my life. And uh, that was one of the only times, by the way, in my life I actually had business plans and projections. I've stopped doing that ever since. But I basically told him I, was, I, I believed in this. And you know what he said? You have plans? You have projections? Could we look? Three weeks later, I ended up with 23 partners. And for seven years, Spreadsheet Solutions actually operated uh, as a first doing, um, first doing just time value money theory, because I was bar mitzvah on it. But um, about a year into doing, uh, selling this product and going to different shows, someone accused me of being a liar. And I said, what are you talking about? Well, you know, I use my HP 12C to do bond yield calculations. I said, what's that? So I, had, and I didn't take calculus in college, so I had to teach myself calculus. And then I taught myself like McLaurin Power Series expansions, and I ended up reading a whole bunch of books on finance. And I created a product called At Fixed Income, which was a whole suite of fixed income calculations. So I became, I won't say an expert in fixed income mathematics, but I wrote a lot of code. And, uh, and it, did, it was just one thing led to another. And next thing you know, I'm working on Wall Street. My, 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 my gig, I was, doing, I was building real-time trading systems. Again, I didn't know anything about this stuff, but I got into market data and people wanted to, to I actually met Michael Bloomberg back when he was running Bloomberg. And, uh, the crazy thing was, I'm at a conference, and it's, I'm showing how to do binary calculations inside of a Lotus 1-2-3 spreadsheet, for those of you who remember Lotus. And he's there selling the, the, you know, the Bloomberg stuff, and he knew my story. You know, he's maybe a very successful mayor in New York City, but he was creepy back then, because he did research on me. <laughs> he knew everything about me, and it was kind of weird. He knew where I lived, he knew everything, and it was the weirdest thing. And, uh, I don't know how he figured it out, because that was pre-internet, but uh, he did. And uh, I, um, 
I had fun though. And uh, but the, the the fixed income stuff though was uh, very interesting to me and very near and dear to my heart. And I built real time trading systems. And this is but again, I had no background in any of this, right? And I'm trying to t encourage any of you who think that your knowledge of lack of knowledge to stop you from doing a startup or stop you from getting out of a corporate gig, forget about it. Do it. Don't hold back. I mean, the biggest mistake I ever made in my life was listening to my friends. Not that they're idiots. But, but you know, if you have an idea for something and someone doesn't get it, fuck them. <laughs> now, I say that now, but I used to listen to these idiots, you know, and they used to discourage me from doing stuff. It's, not everyone's going to understand you. It doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. It took me a life to learn that. That if you feel passionate about something every day, you wake up, you want to do something, do it. Don't kill anyone, but 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 definitely, <laughs> you know, I mean, push yourself forward. If if you feel something very strong about it, people around you may not get it because they, they don't have the DNA to get it. But if you feel it, you know, most people suffer from not listening to themselves. You you you. A lot of people have strong minds, strong hearts, and strong souls, but their balance is off, so that they feel it. And they knew they made a mistake after they did it. But if, if you actually start listening to yourself, your programming is pretty good. It's just that your balance between your overfeeling, overthinking gets in the way of overdoing. And uh, early in the 90s, I had so many ideas for startups, which I don't say that I would have done Hotmail, but I had an idea for Hotmail too. I had an idea to do on, online retail mortgage brokerage. I mean, I had all the, but my friends did not see what I, the world the way I saw it. And so I, I let myself listen to these people. But if you unbound yourself, from a little bit from reality and give yourself the confidence to believe in yourself. That license to believe in yourself takes you everywhere. And if you don't believe me, talk, you know, read what Steve Jobs used to say, because he's right. You know, he didn't make that stuff up, and I can't, I'm not gonna quote him, but I, I, I believe in that stuff too. I believe that you just have it. And if, and it's, you don't go to school for this. This is stuff you just, you just do. For me, um, the real-time trading systems got me a job on Wall Street. A friend of mine became CIO at Cantor Fitzgerald Securities, which those of you who know Cantor, um, they were they a broker's broker. And uh, I had no business being inside. I don't, I don't, I'm unemployable. I believe that great entrepreneurs, or at least some entrepreneurs, are unemployable, right? I don't do well with bosses. You know, I don't know about you guys, but it's like, uh, try being my boss. Oh, I feel bad. Um, uh, I, I mean, and at Canner, the first year and a half was a lot of fun because I got to write my own title. But then magically, the guy that did our document, the guy that, I was in corporate IT. I had like uh, 27 people working for me. My job was more or less uh, getting rebooted in um, a three-year three crash course on business politics. And so uh, a year and a half into it, uh, I basically went from 27 people to nobody. And, uh, and then the guy who was running documentation for our department ended up becoming my boss and he hated me. And I felt like a comic strip Dilbert. And uh, I was very much living the cube lifestyle. And my home life wasn't much better. So I wasn't getting any support at home. I wasn't getting any support in the office. And, and then magically, uh, uh, I read about, uh, I had a job though to be on the internet. So I was on the internet in the 90s. I was on the internet in 94. I was looking at real-time market data information. And so it turned out that UDP data that was you know, changing in real time was just like voice that was trying to be pushed over the internet. So I had a special project to actually look at voice on the internet. And um, my voice is very tolerant of my habits and my passions. And so I discovered that um, this internet thing was happening. So in December 1994, Pulver.com was formed. I grabbed the domain. I had Spreadsheet.com. I still have it. It's available for sale, by the way. But Spreadsheet.com I still I got from 92. And uh, I got Pulver.com set up in 94 and uh, December. And in February 1995, I find out 
from uh, reading a column, reading, uh, I was very much into two-way interactive video, and CUC Me was out of Cornell, and I, and I was on the CUC Me mailing list, and I found out about the software coming out of uh, Israel called, I, the first iPhone, in fact, wasn't from Apple, it's from Israel. And the first iPhone was from this guy from Alan uh, Cohen's company, uh, Vocal Tech, and from a company in Herzliya, which uh, I can now tell you that voice over IP was born in IDF in 1980. And then in 1980s, it was a more or less a top secret technology that Israeli Air Force pilots used to communicate with each other. And in the later part of the 80s, it got commercialized. In the early part of the 90s, it actually became part of the mainstream. And I, I was home from work, I think it was around February 12th, 1995, maybe it was the 14th, it was that week. And I, and I downloaded the software, and all of a sudden, I can now talk on the internet. Now, I'm probably the only person in the world that enjoyed this because I was a ham radio operator guy who liked to talk to strangers. You know, because like the, the, a lot of scuttlebutt about, about iPhone back in the day is nobody wants to talk to strangers. You want to talk to people you know. But on the day that iPhone became available, about 20% of the people were ham operators. And the very awkwardness was that I had WA2BOT, that's my call sign, that's my social media identifier. I had it listed up there. And for weeks, I was pretending to be on the ham radio talking over the computer using the same lingo, the same everything, and it was really cute, but then it got old, you know? But um, what I did as a ham operator is I created a mailing list called the iPhone mailing list, which I did, which was nothing to do with, with vocal tech, um, which provided a community for people who were interested in um, what was going on. Now, I, I mentioned to you I'm an accountant by training, although I did get a D in auditing, but don't hold that against me. But I, 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 I did get a, I am an accountant from college, right? I have no background in telecommunications whatsoever, right? Now what happens to me? Let's see, I, I create the iPhone mailing list. I start creating commentary as a hobbyist about this internet phone and internet telephony. And crazy enough, people start listening to me. Now I wasn't pretending to be an expert. I wasn't pretending to be a, you know, I don't know, uh, Oxford PhD student. No, no, I was just Jeff. And I was just sharing commentary about a product. I created a website to let you find other people who are using the internet phone, because in ham radio, there's a call sign call book where you can look everybody up. So if I'm WA2BOT, you can actually find out where my home was and you can get my address. And so uh, I thought it'd be cool to find, set up a directory of people who were um, uh, online. And uh, so I did that. And then in, then in September 1995, something amazing happened. Somebody from Italy posts to the iPhone mailing list, is it possible to interconnect a telephone and a computer? Now, ding, 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 I remember my humiliation as a freshman at Hofstra. I dust off my phone patch, and guess what? It worked. I knew you could actually interconnect a telephone and a computer and make it work. So I said, sure. Now, what I didn't realize is that there was a, a guy named Isaac Jenny, who lived in Jakarta, Indonesia, and he had more time on his hands than I did, because I was still working at Canner at the time. And he wrote a device driver, and back then, I don't know if you remember the state of sound cards, whether they're half duplex, full duplex, and you had to deal with, uh, you had Cirrus Logic chipset modems, and you had Rockwell modems. So it turned out that if you happened to have had a Cirrus, a Cirrus Logic chipset modem, I had some code that turned a 192K board modem into a one-port gateway. That meant that you can now interconnect your telephone with your computer off the, off the sound card, there would be no echo cancellation, no jitter buffer, no quality of service, but the damn thing worked. And Vocal Tech had some APIs that let us hacks create code. And uh, I actually had this crazy idea to let the world talk for free. And in November 1995, I launched, um, well, some people say a virus, but I, I launched a project on the internet 
called Free World Dial-Up. And for anybody who would contact me, I actually bought a ton of these modems and I sent them around the world. And I, I, stay, I used my office as uh, being at the World Trade Center with the FedEx in the lobby. I don't know why I was doing this, but I was giving away modems to anyone who asked for them. And, and in a very short period of time, and then people found out the configuration to get, and we had hundreds of people around the world running these uh, uh, gateways, allowing free telephony. Now, back in 1995, I learned a life lesson, which is if you don't have a business model, um, and you're not trying to make money, you are disruptive <laughs> and crazy. <laughs> and uh, and AT&T had a lot of laws, and the FCC had a lot of laws to regulate telephony. They didn't have anything for free, nah, 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 nah. And uh, the joke was on them, but in, in March of 1996, 300 phone companies got together and filed a petition at the FCC and the, the Federal Communications Commission. And they asked for the sale and use of internet telephony software to be banned in America and the makers to be regulated as phone, as phone companies. I, I thought that was funny. I thought that was like ridiculous. This is the middle of March. Now I'm getting hundreds of emails, even back then, from people asking what was I gonna do about this. Now, for the record, I had a day job. <laughs> I worked on Wall Street. I, this was all fun for me. This was all like a, a fun opportunity. So I didn't, and I didn't have any standing in Washington. I was a ham operator. All I knew about the FCC is that I was WA2BOT, case done. But I go went ahead and uh, I posted it to my mailing list. And it's all archived. You actually can find all this. And I said, I decided, I, oh, in 1995, you can create, by the way, you can still make anything up on the internet. So I made a bond to stand for voice on the net. And then when it's convenient, also video on the net. But back then it was voice on the net. And so I, I said in 1995 that Vaughn is, and I had Vaughn.com and some other stuff, and Vaughn was voice on the net. And um, P.S., uh, I created the Voice on the Net Coalition. Ooh. And we had 110 companies that got together through the mailing list. And we fought the, the petition, the ACTA petition. Do you know what? For nine years, we kept voice over IP unregulated in America. It was the fear, it was a fear of not dealing with us, or a fear of dealing with us that kept everyone else at bay. And, and, and the Vaughn Coalition still exists today, and it's a 501c6 lobbying organization. I'm Chairman Emeritus. So without knowing anything about telecom lobbying, I started a lobbying organization. <laughs> I am a cyber terrorist. No, that happened later. So, um, so then, um, then any of you guys ever see the movie or read the book Being There or The Secret Life of Walter Mitty? Some of you? Well, I highly, highly recommend seeing the movie at least. Uh, it deserves a remake. Um, but being there is really about, you know, it's about a gardener who meets the president and his, his statements about life that are very basic and very obvious become world profound moments because the president hears it and echoes what he says. Uh, any of you guys familiar with OECD? That's the Organization of Economic uh, Developing Countries. Can you imagine me being invited to an OECD meeting in June of 1996? about the future of, uh, of telecom and the uh, future effects of internet telephony regulation on telecom. I couldn't. But um, any of you guys been to Dublin? It's a fun party city. And to give up a weekend, to, to, to be invited for a weekend in Dublin, how could you say no to it? So I went to Trinity College in, my, uh, in Dublin, and I show up at a, a two-day weekend meeting, and it's the OECD guys, and with all these, lab, all these lawyers, basically, all in suits, and I'm there in jeans and a t-shirt, because that's how I dressed. And, um, but I could tell you that on this particular Saturday, it was really sunny outside when we got inside. It got cloudy, and by the time I went on stage, I was hungry. And all I basically said when it was my turn to talk about internet telephony in the future, that when I got here on Saturday, in the morning I saw it was very bright skies, 
it turned kind of cloudy and I'm kind of hungry. And it was interpreted that I, what I meant by sunny was that there's a bright future for internet telephony. <laughs> that the cloudiness that I was talking about was the uncertainty of international regulations and the future effects on internet telephony. But in the end, we're going to reap great rewards, and that was why we're hungry, because it's going to be very profitable. <laughs> but I, I trust me when I tell you, I was just stating the truth. I was sunny, it was cloudy, and I was damn hungry. Um, that was June. Now, now, I get back from there, I go back to work, and I don't know if there's anyone here from Kenner who was with me then, but there was this, uh, every so often, the two co-managers of the IT department I worked in had, um, had, they loved as a side project to reorganize us. You know, I don't know if you're in corporate IT, it's like you have charts, you know. So I made the mistake of my life, maybe, maybe, because uh, when we, I showed up at this meeting right after, the, right after the, I got back from Dublin and it was right after the 4th of July, and I noticed I was not on the org chart. So I raised my hand and said, guys, uh, it must be a mistake, uh, I'm not on the org chart. Then I saw the two guys go to each other, didn't you fire him, didn't you fire him? So I was toast, and I was in the kind of company, I could have stayed there for weeks, and they would not have fired me because you know, they would notice this, but I was just you know, there. So I got the inevitable phone call um, that, um, that I would, uh, uh, do I want to be escorted out of the building or do I want to leave on my own? And I actually just left on my own. And that was the last time I stepped forth to Canada for Security. Securities, that was, in July, that was July 1986. And the thing is, I didn't want to go back to Wall Street and I, I don't know if any of you have ever been fired, fired in your life, but I was never fired before. And uh, I, at the time, I had, a, well, it's now an ex-wife, but I had a wife, um, and I had two young children. I had a burn rate. I had no savings. I had no clue what I wanted to do. But after going to this conference at OECD and another one in April of that year, I said, wow, these conferences are kind of cool. Now, I had no background in telecom. I had attended a lot of conferences, but I didn't know how to run them. But what did I decide to do? Well, I'll tell you what I decided to do. I decided that on September 10th and 11th, and these dates matter, September 10th and 11th, 1996, at the Puck Building in Soho, New York City, I'm going to do a two-day conference about internet telephony in the future. Because you could. So I did. And uh, I had no money, though. I had no savings. American Express was absolutely crazy enough, though, to give me a credit card. and. Uh, I am thankful of that because, and grateful because I had an Optima card and I had $15,000 worth of uh, credit. And I w back then I had to go to JFK. I got $15,000 in traveler's checks. And, I, and I, I, took, I pulled down all that money that I could and that became the, um, my deposit for my first conference. I, I, I used it for the catering and for the room rental at the puck building. And to my utter surprise, I ran this conference not knowing anything about anything and 224 people from around the world showed up. People, some of those people within a year to two years to three years would be running billion dollar companies. Some of those people actually, well I don't know if they're billionaires still, but they were in the dot com era and certainly, and these are just regular people sitting next to you. But magic was happening and I didn't, I didn't appreciate it. The first conference I didn't speak very much. But I, I made like enough money profit to say I wouldn't do it again. And the first time around I called it the talking net and I actually had the CUCME guys for video and I had the voice guys. And then in April 97 I did it again. And I called it Vaughn, which was just voice on the net. And that accidentally gave birth to the trade show and conference, which gave birth to the voice over IP industry that within three years' time uh, legitimized voice over IP that the world's phone companies all started using it. Uh, the early entrepreneurs in voice over IP actually were doing some really incredible cre creative stuff. Because like free will dial-up maybe was a first, although I never filed for patents, so I never held anyone on it. Maybe I should have. But um, 
I, um, what I did, I ended up um, going forward and uh, creating these conferences and I noticed these entrepreneurs, they had put a computer in, in Santo Domingo, a computer in Tel Aviv, a computer in London, a computer in New York City, a computer in London, in Seoul, in Tokyo. And they were using the internet to, to make phone calls, and to connect computer to computer, and they would make local dialing. And now, they were not phone companies doing it, these are just entrepreneurs. They had a lot of gray market minutes, we call them being polite here. Uh, in certain countries, you were actually put in jail for doing it, and many other places, it was all like under, under the hood. And uh, I, the, the, the people who came to the Vine conferences were coming to my conferences really to meet each other. And having worked on Wall Street, I actually created a trading system based on the way bonds trade, and I cr actually created a spot market for voice over IP, and I called it the Minix Exchange, or Minix. And that was in 98. So the Minix Exchange was going while I was running the Vine conferences. Um, and, then, and then I became also at the same time busy doing political stuff, trying to do activism to keep voice over IP unregulated. Anyway, in my conference business, with, from zero to 18 months, I, went, I, I actually went from zero to about $15 million in revenue. My staff was a sorority from Hofstra. <laughs> I'm just saying, you don't need to have professionals in any part of your business. If you don't know what you're doing, you can do anything. I hold that, true, that statement true today. That it's when you bring in experienced people that are used to doing things a certain way, they could screw you over. Because it worked, what worked for them then doesn't mean it's going to work now. But when you deal with people that are unbounded to their potential, magic really can happen. So Vaughn was run truly by totally unprofessional people. And we're having fun. And I, and I learned that, in fact, Vaughn was all about having, taking having fun seriously. I don't know if any of you get to live your passion. I love music. At the Vaughn conferences, and for those of you who are used to go to them, I mean, what did I do? I would hear the bands playing on the radio, and I put them on stage at our conference parties. I discovered that if you do a three-day conference, and the second night you open up the bar for seven hours and let people drink, and you put a live band on stage, people become very friendly. And uh, people then will come back. So back in the 90s, I had Third Eye Blind, Smash Mouth, uh, Gulu Dolls, uh, Counting Crows, Liz Fair, um, The Commitments, and all sorts of various artists that I, I just happened to like. And of course, being the host, I have to put in the rider that Jeff will sing Mustang Sally on stage with everybody. But it was just for fun, because I really can't sing, I only pretended. But it's the enjoyment of putting yourself out there and just having fun became core to my businesses. And you know, fast forward a couple of years, in December 2000, I get a phone call from a competitor who asked me, um, what's my exit strategy? Now, I must tell you, I did not know what an exit strategy is. Do you guys know what exit strategies are? Right? I had no idea. Right? I was running a benevolent dictatorship. I am in favor of benevolent dictatorships. Uh, all the equity of the company was mine. I didn't know to share. And I had no exit strategy. So I didn't know what it was. So he said, you know, this is when you, like, you're doing, you, you have conference business, you're fairly successful, or very successful. You want to sell it. I said, why in the world do I want to, finally, do I want to sell the one thing I'm finally doing really good at? Because this is what you do. Now that stood in the back of my head. Because I didn't know, know what to do. But in July of 2001, after the dot-com crash, and uh, certainly after the, well, the telecom crash didn't exactly happen yet, um, I got a premonition, you know, I better sell. I don't know why I should sell, I should sell. So I did. Do anyone want to guess what day, what, what day I sold my business? December 10th, 2001, that's right. On, December, on September 11th, 2001, my company was worth zero. It was worth zero because I was in destination events business, and if people are not getting on airplanes, they're not going to conferences. Uh, but on September 10th, 2001, my, was a day my deal, my conference sold, and the company that I, that I 
um, that I had started for $15,000, I had a pretty decent exit. I sold it on paper for $57 million. But it was, then 9-11 happened, so there was no upside, so it, it um, uh, reduced to 40 million. Still sort of respectable, I guess. And, but the thing is, I felt so privileged to be alive, and, and that's when I started thinking about dates and stuff, because getting fired saved my life. Because I had the kind of job in IT that I very well could have been there on 9-11. 700 people who worked at Cannon for died. Uh, 400 of those people I remembered, and in fact, one person who I hired died because of me, because when I was doing the minutes exchange, I couldn't get uh, Bill Gardner to leave, and so he stayed, and so I'm, I'm always, I always have that heaviness. But, um, but being lucky is okay. I don't apologize for being lucky. I think that if you're lucky in what you do, be proud of it, and, and, and stand up to it. You know, and, and, but be, be humble about it, but at least be, you know, and don't, don't live in your shadows. So I had a fantastic exit. Of course, the company I sold it to, they, were, they ran Comdex. You guys know what happened to Comdex? It went bankrupt. So two weeks before they went bankrupt, I bought Von back. And then I sold it again in 2007, but that didn't have such a happy ending for me. But um, the, the whole idea of being able to, you know, and by the way, I ran, uh, oh, oh, what happened in 98 though with Minix, in 2000 it became, B2B, in 2000 all these B2B exchanges going public, um, I felt left out because I had a B2B exchange. So I went to see some VCs, you know, and they taught me a fancy word called disintermediation, which I can't spell even today. But they liked what I was doing, and so I decided that we're going to be real. So in 2000, so we start raising money, and we start finding investors. And Jeff Citron, who uh, had done Daytech Online, he became the lead investor in Minix. And that's when I actually got the, the office space in Edison. And while he was working on Minix and I was incubating it in Long Island, I told him the next, the no, next business I want to do is a broadband phone company. And uh, a month after they moved out of my office, I got a phone call from Jeff that said that Minix was a good idea but the, be the best uh, it would ever do is a multi-million dollar business, and he wanted to be a multi-billion dollar business. So in four, a few months later, they, they, he said he's gonna reboot into the broadband phone company, and in April 2001, they changed the name from Minix to Vonage. So, so I accidentally started Vonage. Um, and Vonage stands for the age of voice on the net. Now, I, I didn't, I mean, I, I, mean, I was chairman for the first couple of years. And I, I did that purely because, you know, no one said you couldn't. So, you know, I, I started a telecom company, not knowing anything about telecom. I ran a business that presumably was fairly successful at any, without knowing anything about conferences, without knowing anything about anything, really. And, you know, when I invest in startups, uh, I'll tell you, when I was on, when I was uh, um, fired, no one would invest in me. I still have found the business plan for Pulver.com that I pitched. Nobody would invest in me. And I was looking for, for $500,000 to start a conference business which I ended up starting for $15,000. Nobody would invest in me. And that feeling of absolute on the edge, I wasn't suicidal, but I was really, really close. I felt that a few times since then. If you ever want to know how to piss away $40 million, I, I have that blueprint. I, I know how to do it, and it takes, but I can't talk because you're taping this. Um, <laughs> it, it, the reality though is I like to share, I like to give, I like to have fun. I believe to live your life and live your life fullest. And, then, and to give of yourself, and to, and to enjoy what you do, and, and do what you enjoy. And, and, and to live now, right? It's not that tomorrow won't happen, but live life now is sort of my whole mantra. And, and for me, the, 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 before I go to q and I just wanted to share a quick story. Premonitions to me, and serendipity and synchronicity is something which I cannot ignore. 
I mean, just the way things line up, and it's funny, but it's sad and it's true. But in January 2003, I woke up and I really felt like I was traveler from the future. And I really felt like I had to fix a future wrong. And so what did I do? Well, I had this horrible nightmare that the phone companies woke up and realized how disruptive broadband is to their future. Just curious, any people here use FaceTime? Uh, you guys pay anything for FaceTime? Any of you guys use Skype? Are you paying for Skype? Except, except for video. For voice, free? You're welcome. <laughs> See, I, um, I had this premonition that the phone companies would wake up and realize how disruptive broadband as a platform would be for their future. And I have nothing against the phone companies. Well, but I, um, <laughs> I went to the lawyers that we created the, vo to f that created the Voice the Net Coalition for, and I filed a petition at the FCC. Because I, I actually asked them, I wanted the regulatory clarity that voice communication that starts on the broadband internet that doesn't touch the legacy phone network for it not to be regulated as telecom. I thought it was a very simple ask, right? So it took five weeks for them to draw up the language as the lawyers have to, and they filed it. And then I said, I still remember talking to Glenn Richards, and Glenn, I asked Glenn, you know, so when does the fight begin? He says, what fight? He says, Jeff, you're living in a country where someone hears Martian signals in their ears. They could file a petition at the FCC. It doesn't mean they're going to uh, fight it. They're going to put it out for comment. But it's like, be careful what you wish for. Um, because we went to, um, 10 days into this, the FCC put my, put my petition out for public comment. Anyone, and what that means is, for the next 30 days, the phone companies, well, I, for me, it was shit on Jeff Pulver month. Because for the next 30 days, the phone companies of America and the world were able to attack my integrity uh, and the merits of the petition. And they did. And you can find all this on the FCC website. Some of it's really funny. Some of it was not so funny. But they went forward and they attacked me on every which way they could and, and have all these reasons why the petition should not be granted. Uh, I had 30 days to respond back. And then in May of 2003, does anyone know what happened? That's right, I was accused by the Department of Justice and the FBI for harboring Al-Qaeda. <laughs> Do I look like an Al-Qaeda kind of guy? I don't know. <laughs> but they thought that the Mer that free world, they were basically in their reply comments, they thought that I was trying to prevent broadband wiretapping. They didn't know about the NSA. And, uh, <laughs> and all these other things. And so what I ended up doing is, you know, you can mess around with the phone companies, but when the FBI and the DOJ go after you, you gotta meet with them. So back in 2003, the government re re repurposed some MCI buildings in downtown Washington. One of them, and the second floor had a door that said Computer Crimes Division. I swear I felt like I was on the set of Law and Order. Because there were three people from the government, 10 of us, because we were free world dial represented, and um, only one person introduced themselves, which is very creepy if you think about it. And, and they were not there to negotiate the merits of the petition. They were there basically to ask us questions. And so our, our, our Ed Guy, who was our CTO, I felt bad for Ed because after about, I don't know, a half hour, it looked like he shed about 10 pounds of water weight. So I jumped in. And I said, guys, listen, if you, if you think we're harboring Al-Qaeda, take free world dial run it. If you want to host our services so you can decrypt our logs, take it. Whatever we could possibly do to help you, it's yours. This was not what the government expected of me. Um, so we didn't hug it out, but I left with, I think, at least one new friend in the government. And, um, and I think it was the same, the next day, or maybe it was the, the, the afternoon, I, we ended up going to the West Wing of the White House. You guys have been to the West Wing? I'm sure some of you have. But anyway, um, at the time, President Bush had a telecom czar. And um, 
And for me, my impression of the West Wing was like the TV show West Wing. Um, except I was only dealing with this one person in an office, and it was a second floor office, and he had, um, he had, a, he had windows. It was all glass, all glass office. He sees us come in, and after dealing with the FBI and DOJ from before, it's like, do we really want to be here? But he comes in, and, and we pitch him free will dial up, and he says, yeah, 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 President Bush is behind the petition, and he thinks it's good for broadband in America, and all these other things. We're all looking at each other. So I actually let one of my other guys pitch the pitch, because it's like, I was tired of this. And, but he, he was, at the end of the day, he was very excited to have us. And, uh, and, and, we, and he, we were just like so overwhelmed. And so, but I still remember this. As he saw the doors of the elevator closing in on us, he opened up his glass doors and he yelled at us, thank you for not asking for subsidies. And we said, shit, we could have gotten subsidies. What idiots, what idiots. <laughs> so anyway, nine months later, nine months later, at the FCC meeting in February 2004, um, the FCC issued what became called the Pulver Order. I became a subject down in Washington. And to this very day, and we're celebrating the 10th anniversary in February, this is why things like Skype on uh, voice and FaceTime and everything else is free. It's because it's, you can be. And these days, the phone companies actually use a pulver order to protect themselves from regulation. And I had no idea, if anyone would have told me how impossible it is to go to Washington and get a law passed in your name, I never would have done it. But because standing before you is a forest company of communications, I did it. And I believe that cluelessness is a gift. And I think ignorance, in the right way, is a gift. And laziness, in the right way, well-intended laziness, helps innovate. And uh, if any of you are crazy enough to be crazy, I embrace you. Because I, I do think that the, the way we, the world changes is by letting yourself discover who you are and to giving yourself a chance to be you. And I hope to spend the rest of my life being me. And I'll, tell you that the, maybe my most proudest achievement, and if you have time, I'll do a few questions if you have them. Um, so anyone here seen me speak before? Some of you, any of you know me from before? So um, I happen to have lost, I should say outsourced, because lost is the wrong word. Mm -hmm. But from since July 2012 to today, I've gotten rid of uh, almost 120 pounds. Wow. And, uh, if my proudest achievement was getting the pulver order passed, I think living is my bigger achievement. And uh, I'll tell you that nothing is impossible. It helps to be obsessive. Uh, it helps to focus on yourself. And, but I lived in a world not that long ago where to walk 10 feet I was in pain. You know, where you go, out to the, where you go to the movies, you have to sit on the edge of the movie theaters. You always have to sit on the edge because no one could pass you. That you go out to a diner and you can't sit in the booth because you don't fit that I, I actually realized this the other day when, when two pennies dropped out of my pocket, I bent over to pick them up. I think $20 would have had to have fallen out of my pocket for me to bend over to pick it up. <laughs> I, I mean, I was miserable, in pain, and living a life of coexistence, but not a life for me. And so I woke up and I ended up spending seven months putting myself in shape to get to exercise. And then, then December 30th, I gave up eating wheat. And uh, I had no idea that for me to give up wheat would mean having more energy, mean um, not getting hungry, not getting um, uh, not getting hungry, and really not, not no cravings for things. That acid reflex that was bothering me would, would go away. That um, cramps that I used to think was normal would go away. That uh, my, when I was a baby, my parents took me in the emergency room because because they, they thought I swallowed a baby toy because I had a wheeze my entire life. After n meeting my nephew at summer camp in August, I realized I had no allergies for the first time in 20 years. And I don't look eight and a half months pregnant. 
So, um, you know, there's a law of readiness in nature that says you're ready when you're ready. And that no matter how much you love someone, you can't force them to do anything. It's like a baby developmentally growing up in certain stages. But when you're ready for it, let me tell you, the one thing I discovered the past 15 months is crowdsourced motivation on Facebook. I had no idea by opening up and sharing on Facebook the amount of love and attention and uh, absolute beauty that would, I would discover. My niece Emily still calls me Uncle Selfie. She thinks I little, share a little bit too much. But what she doesn't know are the random strangers who, and friends of mine who will reach out and send me a message and tell me about their journey. And, I'll, and if any of you have any interest in losing weight or going on a journey or need help or need motivation for it, feel free to ping me. I'm happy to help any of you. Will at least share with you what worked for me. Uh, after, I bought, by the way, 41 books on health, wellness, fitness, and food. And I'm convinced that, that there's not one book that a million people will read that a million people could lose any significant weight from because we're all snowflakes. Our DNA is different. But if you want to raise your metabolism, build muscle. But um, I, I, I went through a metamorphosis because I, I went to a doctor and I was actually Googling trying to figure out how to save my life because I was very skinny until I was about 23, 24 and then I put on all this weight. And um, he told me that he actually was in favor of gastric bypass surgery. I'm happy to tell you I bypassed the bypass. And I did it just mindfully. And uh, it, it, it's something which, because I rebooted myself. My triglycerides back then were 265, today they're 54. Um, any of you who ever were athletes in your life, you all have muscle memory. I had muscle amnesia. <laughs> I, I, my muscles don't have memory. You know, I didn't have any, any connections with my uh, impulses. I'm, I'm basically a much older version of a person just for the very first time going out. And the thing is, I've never known what it's like to be in shape, but it's amazing. And it feels great, and you can do it at any age. And you can never be too much in shape, as it turns out. But life is fun. And so for me, uh, these days, what keeps me going is I have a new startup called Zula. And if any of you, if I had an ask, it would be for you guys to download from ZulaApp.com, download it, play with it, and give me feedback, because I could use the feedback. We just launched our Android version last week. And ZulaApp.com is the company. And I, I hope to transform the way people work together. But anyway, that's my story. I thank you for listening. If you have any questions, I'm here. But thank you. Oh, um, oh I, I, I did do a conference after Vaughn called the 140 Conference. I, I happened to have discovered Twitter in, in 2006, became active in 2007, and uh, I ran a conference. I, I don't know if I'm going to do it this, next year, but I, I've been running events, bringing together, looking at the, real -time of the effects of the real-time uh, social web on business and on life, and it's, it's been a fun, fun event for me because I, I, I believe that there's a lot that's going on, and I do think that in, in, in the world today, that w one of the changes, any, how many people you are on Twitter here? So any, any of you guys retweet? You guys retweet tweets? I'll tell you a slightly funny but real story. In 2010, a friend of mine, Ann Curry, who used to work for the Today Show, she went down to Haiti like the third day after the earthquake. And um, she noticed that the uh, US Air Force had closed the runway for, uh, um, for everybody. And Doctors Without Borders, which I found out later is an organization, was trying to help with their doctors and supplies. They were trying to land on that runway. And uh, I didn't have my ham radio set up. I actually was on my kitchen table, but I was on Twitter. And as a ham operator trying to help out in times of, uh, uh, of uh, discourse or at times of uh, you know, like uh, earthquakes, what do you do? 
So I saw Ann Courage when she put out a tweet, at U.S. Air Force, please let Doctors Without Borders land their planes. I quickly figured out who Doctors Without Borders were. I simply tweeted, at U.S. Air Force, please let Doctors Without Borders land their plane. Do you know a minute later I got a tweet, at U.S. Air Force, at Jeff Pulver, we're on it. So I wrote, thanks. Um, <laughs> an hour later, at U.S. Air Force, at Jeff Pulver, the plane has landed. I wrote, um, thanks for telling me. And then the creepy thing happened. I got an email at US Air Force is following you. So I checked out, I was the 27th person they followed. I can understand US, you know, the White House, Southern Command, US Army, and me. So what do you do when you get, when you get a follow? You direct message them. I wrote, where are you? They write back, the Pentagon. To this day, I have not tweeted to them or direct message, please help, I need an airlift, but I think they're there. <laughs> and that is a difference in the world. There's a back channel. You see, on 9-11, for any of you that were around New York City, you may have known this, but, but between the fire department, the police department, the FBI, and everyone, all the emergency workers, everyone was trying to talk to each other, but they couldn't hear each other because everyone's on different radio channels. It took five years in a federal mandate to homogenize communication in times of emergencies. But in, when, when that earthquake happened in 2010, it was the first time in human history, as far as I know, that the entire world was on one frequency called Twitter. And people were there, and they were giving themselves and feeling themselves. And the Dalai Lama at that point was asked to share what he thought about the future of humanity. And he said that, I'm paraphrasing, that never before in his life had he seen so much outpouring of love for any kind of emergency than what he saw happen in Haiti. And I think a lot of it happened, it was because of what happened with Twitter, that the world could be there, that the US Air Force is willing to talk to a civilian like me. Think about how the game-changing difference that is, that how different we are. And you know, going into 2014, I just beg you that if any of you guys are in marketing, you know, it's one thing to be a chief marketing officer, what the world needs are chief listening officers. Better today to, to listen, to share, to, you know, to, to listen, connect, share, and engage, because that's when meaningful stuff will happen. But it's, it's just magic. So I was doing these conferences looking to find that magic. And I, and I think that it's just amazing what, what's happened. Uh, and I don't mean to be philosophical, but it could take a lifetime to discover that. But when you have the confidence to be who you are, embrace it. Because I think it's the best thing you could ever do. Guys, thank you for listening. Thanks for tonight. We hope you enjoyed the episode today. Make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss out on our future episodes. From the team at New Jersey Tech Meetup, we hope you're having a great day, and we look forward to spending more time with you in the future. 